Well, good morning, everybody. Let me uh, pray for us. Uh, Father, we ask that what we just sang together, we would experience to be true in this moment, uh, even if we can't perceive it, even if we can't feel it, um, that you would come to us with your invitation, with your peace, that you would bind us together in love, love for one another and love for you. Tend to us in all of the places where we find ourselves this morning. Show us the grace of Jesus, and we pray it in his name. Amen. Well, we have uh, been reading Paul's first letter to the Thessalonian church together this summer. It is a letter that Paul wrote after he heard uh, that that really, really young church there, who he had left much sooner than he wanted to, was doing pretty good. Uh, It is a letter that is written with a sense of joy and a sense of affection and a sense of thanks for how they are getting along without him. And you can hear all of that, I think, pretty clearly in the part of the letter that we're going to look at this morning. So let me read the back half of chapter 3 for us. I'll read uh, 1 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 13. It's printed in your order of worship if you want to follow along there. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now, we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. So I don't know uh, if I have uh, ever mentioned the TV show Alone before in a sermon. Maybe Pastor David has. Uh, We love that show. And if you're not familiar with it, it is a pretty simple uh, concept. Ten people experienced uh, survivalists usually are dropped into a really uh, remote location somewhere like in the Arctic or in the wilderness of British Columbia. Each of those uh, 10 survivalists can only bring 10 items with them into that place. They never have contact with each other. They never see each other. They never see anyone else and they record their experience with uh, cameras. They document their experience with cameras. Uh, And whoever can make it the longest in those circumstances without calling for an extraction team on a satellite phone, whoever can make it the longest wins. It is pretty great. 
And one of the reasons uh, that I like that show, one of the things I like the most about it is seeing how a situation like that, which is incredibly extreme and difficult, it's seeing how a situation like that strips back really quickly a lot of the insulation, a lot of the distraction we normally have around ourselves as human beings. And what it really means to be human comes to the surface. And one of those things, surprisingly enough, is thankfulness. It is gratefulness. Michael uh, McCullough, who is a psychologist at UC San Diego, says this about humans. He says, one of the things that's really interesting about the human mind is that we seem to want to see agency in the world, almost intuitively. The mind really craves an explanation for the good and for the bad in terms of agency. He's saying it's kind of hardwired into us. We don't exactly know why, but it's hardwired into human beings to see good things happen and to want to say thank you for those things, to want to ascribe good agency to those things. And you see this uh, all of the time when the folks on alone are finally able to get some food after days of having nothing substantial at all to eat. Some of them, when they find food, usually for the first time, some of them laugh hysterically. And some of them scream and yell at the top of their lungs. Some of them fall to their knees and sob and weep. All of them show immense gratitude. All of them show immense thankfulness, even when they don't know exactly where to direct that thanks. I watched an episode recently where a guy caught a fish. It was his first fish. He had been six days without any real food, and he caught this fish, and immediately he burst into laughter. He screamed and yelled with these happy shouts, and then after he conked that fish on the head to kill it, he looked at that dead fish on the rocks and said to it with utter sincerity, thank you, buddy. (laughs) Thank you, buddy. Thank you, dead fish. And it makes sense acting on that impulse that is deep inside of us to give thanks. And I thought about that this week when I read that great uh, unanswered question that Paul asks in the part of the letter that we just read together. He just asked this question and he leaves it hanging in the air and you can sense such a great experience of release in it. You can feel this great experience of joy and satisfaction in it. And when he asks, what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake. He has no answer for that question. The best he can do is simply ask that question and hope that in the articulation of that question, what could we possibly offer to God for thanks? that somehow it will express his deep thankfulness and gratefulness. And you and I have something to learn from this about the habit of gratitude and about the kind of things that call out gratitude when they are present in the life of the church, in you and me. So Paul begins, now that Timothy has come to us from you. That returning of Timothy to Paul, that's the whole reason that we're reading this letter. That is the whole reason that he wrote this letter. If Timothy hadn't returned, there would be no letter of 1 Thessalonians. So for those of you who haven't been with with us or those of you who might need uh, a little bit of a refresher, here's what's going on. Shortly after Paul arrived 
in Thessalonica and started preaching there. This small but incredibly diverse group of people had started to follow Jesus. Part of that group was Jewish folks and Greek folks who admired Judaism and then everyday kind of vanilla pagans. There were wealthy people and prominent people and poor people and the working class too. It was this incredible cross-section of that wildly cosmopolitan city in northern Greece and these fresh Christians drew some attention. Maybe in part because they were so diverse, no one had ever seen something quite like that before. And eventually another group went to the city officials to let the city officials in on this fledgling church. And the way that group put it was this. There is another bunch of people in the city right now who are acting against the decrees of Caesar. They are saying that there is another king named Jesus. All of that is true, by the way. It's exactly what those Christians were saying. It's exactly what those Christians were doing. It also happens to be sedition against the empire to do that, and it's the kind of thing that would get you killed. So one of the prominent Christians in Thessalonica named Jason makes an arrangement with the officials to get Paul and the rest of his group out of the city quickly. So on the one hand, Paul escaped with his life. That's good. On the other hand, He is riddled with concern. He is riddled with anxiety over them. On the other hand, he feared that those young Christians who were left alone to face that opposition, to face that outright persecution in the city, he was afraid that they might not be mature enough. They might not have nurtured the habit of faith long enough to resist the temptation to be moved and to simply walk away and fade back into empire. We were torn from you, Paul says. We were torn from you. We were afraid for you. And when we couldn't bear it any longer, when we couldn't stand it any longer, we sent Timothy to you to find out about your faith. And now, as the way Paul is narrating it and reminiscing, Timothy has returned. And what Paul writes in verse 6 is really remarkable. He says, Timothy has brought us the gospel. (laughs) That's the word that he uses there. The word that he usually uses to talk about the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension given for us and the forgiveness of our sins and the life of the world. That word, good news, in the English, that's the one Paul uses. He uses that word 21 times in his letters and 20 other places. It's always about Jesus. And just here in this place, it's about some people. These young Christians, his friends, this little church. He has heard the gospel about their faith and love. The good news about their faith and love. And I think that's pretty remarkable too. Their faith and their love is what does it. That's what matters. Not that they're crushing it. Not that they're becoming influential in the public square. Not that the church is blowing up there. Not that they're already looking to send out other people with the good news to other cities in northern Greece and get churches started there. I mean, if all of that stuff happened, it would probably be just fine. But that is not what sounds like gospel to Paul. 
Here's what he heard about their faith and love. Paul puts those words together a lot in his letters. Like we talked about last week, what Paul means when he uses faith here is continuing fidelity to live as followers of Jesus. He's heard they are practicing and they are nurturing the habit of faith. It's not that they're giants in the faith. It's not that they have this really strong, remarkable faith that people look at and, and want to write books about. I mean, maybe they did. Maybe some of them do. We don't know. What we do know is very simple. They have continued in faith. They have continued to abide in it. They have remained in faith, even though that there was a lot of stuff, even though there was a lot of stuff, both internal to them and certainly external, there was a lot of stuff that would have made it easier for them to simply throw up their hands and walk away and fade back into the old life of empire. And I'm telling you, church, just about every single Christian that I know, myself included, has felt like that at some point. Like it would be easier it would be easier for me if I just didn't do this anymore, if I didn't remain in faith anymore. But they did. They did. They, they abided in faith. And that remaining in Jesus has worked in them what remaining in Jesus always works, love. Self-giving love, like the kind that Jesus gave them to begin with. So yeah, Timothy says, yeah, Paul, they remember you kindly, just like you remember them kindly. Of course, man. And yes, they definitely want to see you just like you want to see them. All of this affection is completely mirrored and reflected back, and all of that stuff's good. But Paul, I'm telling you, they've got the thing that matters the most. They have faith and love. And church, that's what I want for you and me. <laughs> That's what I want for us as a church, that we would aim for those two things, for faith and love, that we would aim for continued fidelity. And as Jesus taught us in the gospel lesson that we heard, that we would aim for love just as he loved us, self-giving love. This is how people will know, Jesus says. This is how they're going to know that you follow me. This is gonna how, how they're going to know that you're Christians, that you love in a self-giving way. Faith and love. When people like you and me aim for anything different than those things, we wander around a lot. And sometimes we wander away. Faith and love are the needful things. Paul told the Galatian church, as followers of Jesus, the only thing that matters is faith working through love. He told them the only thing that matters is faith working through love. The only thing that matters as followers of Jesus is faith working through love. And we have to ask ourselves, do we believe that or not? And if we do, if the answer is yes, we do, then I'm telling you, church, the only way that I know to aim for continued fidelity and the only way that I know to aim to have 
the growth of self-giving love happen inside us is making use of the ordinary means of grace as much as we possibly can, worshiping together, (laughs) prayer together and alone, scripture reading, the sacraments being together in proximity and in the presence of one another serving one another and serving our neighbors together. These are the things, these are the things that help us not to wander. These are the things that help us hold on to faith. These are the things that grow self-giving love in us. It's what we have. (laughs) And it will help us to continue in fidelity. These things will help grow self-giving love in us. And if you ever wonder uh, about the critical importance of those things and uh, you ever wonder if those are the things that really matter, just listen. Just listen to how Paul talks about it when he finds out that's what they had. In verse 8 he says, for now we live you're standing firm in God. It's like when we left you, we died. (laughs) It's like when we left you, we took a big deep breath in and now we can finally exhale. We finally feel like we're alive again because that stuff is in you and with you. And then this is where he asks that beautiful question that just hangs out in the air unanswered. And unlike that guy on uh, alone <laughs> who directed his gratitude to the unseeing and unthinking fish, who frankly had been absolutely unwilling participant in his drama up until that point. Unlike that guy, Paul, we could say, has a firmer sense of where to direct his thanks. To the God who does see and to the God who does know, and to the God who has been a willing participant in the drama of his life and theirs and ours from the moment that we were born. The God who called all of those folks in Thessalonica in love in the first place, he asks, what thanksgiving could we return to God for you? for all of the joy that we feel for your sake. It's like we are men undone and we can finally breathe again and we can finally live again and we hardly know what to say. I can't help but hear an echo of Psalm 116 here. It's the Old Testament lesson that we heard read this morning. It's so beautiful. The psalm writer asks, what shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits for me? Just asking that question puts someone like you and me in the right place. Because even if we don't know what it is exactly that we could render, even if we don't know exactly how to articulate our thanks in the best possible way, we know that we should give it a shot. (laughs) 
And we know that it's God who is the proper recipient of that thanks. And when you and I do that, when we direct that impulse of gratitude towards God, when you and I do that, something that was broken and twisted at the heart of the universe is made a little bit more right. When you and I direct our gratitude towards God, something of our essential humanness, something of our proper and good humanness, is restored in us because we know God and we honor him by giving him thanks. And church, this is a habit that people like us have to cultivate. It's a habit that people like us have to nurture. I have to cultivate this. I have to nurture this because it doesn't come natural. That impulse that we have to ascribe agency and to give thanks, it doesn't come natural to look at God and say, God, thank you for this. If we don't cultivate it, that instinctive impulse to find agency for the good things that happen and to express gratitude for the good things that happen, that, that, aid, that impulse that's hardwired into us, if, if we don't cultivate it to go towards God, we will direct it into some pretty strange places. Like a dead fish maybe, but probably not. Because most of us we'll direct it back in on ourselves. As in, I did this. I made this happen. I earned it. And church, believing that puts us on a treadmill of exhaustion, believing that puts us on a treadmill of sadness that none of us have been made for. It sets us into this flat, featureless, ugly world with the burden, the immense burden of self-belonging and self-justification on our shoulders with no way out of that ugly place except for more, more of the same, more of me earning it myself, more of me doing it, more of me justifying my existence, more of me making all the things happen. And it is exhausting, and it is inhuman precisely because it is not true. It isn't true. The good gifts don't come from our hands, and even the ones that look like they did were placed there graciously by God to begin with. That's the truth. And so the antidote to that poison is cultivating the habit of thanksgiving. And usually for people like us, it begins with small things, like waking up in the morning or going to bed at night. Uh, Martin Luther wrote simple morning and evening prayers. He included them in his small catechism because he hoped people would use them. (laughs) The morning prayer in that catechism starts like this. I thank you. I thank you. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm in danger. God thanks that I woke up this morning because it wasn't a given. <laughs> and then the evening one starts like this. It will not surprise you. Here's how the evening prayer starts. I thank you. <laughs> I thank you. 
my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have graciously kept me this day. Thanks, God, that I made it through the day to another night. <laughs> wasn't a given. And I, and I got to tell you, Luther wasn't reinventing the wheel here. He was actually drawing on centuries, centuries, I tell you, centuries of Christian tradition. Because our mothers and fathers in the faith learned that we can cultivate and we can nurture the habit of thanksgiving by beginning with the small things like waking up in the morning or going to bed at night or saying thank you, God, before we eat some food. We cultivate this in the small things. We make this a habit of our lives in the small things. And then who knows, maybe it becomes second nature to us. Maybe after years of cultivating this, it will become second nature. And it will flow out of us. And we'll write a rambling, beautiful, heartfelt, sentimental, big-hearted, joyous prayer of thanks that spans three chapters, just like the Apostle Paul did when he wrote 1 Thessalonians. Do you understand that is what we have been reading? A big, fat, rambling, joyful, hearty prayer of thanks that began with, we give thanks to God always for you constantly, and ends with, what thanksgiving could we possibly return to God for you? Sometimes that's how Scripture works. It gives us life, and it gives us good. And it gives us life and good, not only in the individual words and lines, but in the entire movements of a song, of a poem, of a prayer, of a thought. And we learn how to give thanks best from people who give thanks. <laughs> and we learn to pray from people who pray. Which is how Paul ends this part of the letter with a formal prayer, asking God to bless his friends by granting them two things. First, in verse 11, that God would direct our way to you. A letter is okay, but it is a thin substitute for a face. <laughs> I mean, everything. Everything you can think of is a thin substitute for a face. And he wants to see him. And as far as we know, Paul finally gets to see them again about five years after he writes this prayer. And second, he prays in verse 12 that God would make them increase and abound in love for one another and for all. And I think that's great. They already have love. You just... He just lost his mind when he heard they had love, right? They already have it. But according to Jesus, that is the essential marker of Christianity. Timothy said they've got it. They, they've got the essential marker of Christianity. But they and we could never possibly exhaust that. There is no box to check and say that we have completely and exhaustively loved. We can grow in it and increase in it because the supply of it to people like us through the cross and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus is unending. Its breadth and depth and width and height surpasses our knowing of it. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you would make us a people who return again and again and again to the unfathomable, unfathomable depth of your love for us in Jesus so that we would grow in that self-giving love.
so that we would be nourished in it, so that we would learn what it looks like, so that it becomes second nature to us. Father, alongside that love, we ask that you would help us to abide and remain and continue. Father, be happy to use all of the ordinary means of grace and all of the extraordinary ones that you might want to use in our lives to keep us tethered to you in faith. Do this so that we can grow up and so that we can mature. Do this so that through us you can love this broken world. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.